Well, today we continue our study in 1 Corinthians 11. Go ahead and crack open your Bibles as we're going to uh, finish the final half of 1 Corinthians 11. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, what a modern marvel we live in. You can get right on Google, type in 1 Corinthians 11. It'll take you to one of several online Bible programs, and you can follow right along on your device. And um, that'll be helpful as, as we go through this. A lot of the verses from 1 Corinthians 11 will not be on the screen. A few of them will, but several support verses as we think through this passage and study through this passage will be. Before I get into the message, let me remind you about the upcoming mission trip meeting immediately following the morning service in room 143, which is our starting point room. We have two missions trips next year that we hope to go on, one to Mongolia and one to Zambia. And today it gets serious. A few weeks ago we did the interest meeting and now it gets serious. Now we're going to be asking you to put your name on the dotted line and put some money down for a deposit as we make these plans and uh, research plane tickets and all that. So uh, just a brief meeting, about five minutes, won't take long. We'll get you to your growth group immediately following, but uh, just meet me in room 143 for that. Uh, today's uh, message is entitled Communion Chaos or Craziness in Communion. Chaos in Communion, all those can work. Uh, Paul is going to address something very serious that was going on in the church of Corinth. As we know, Corinth was not, or the book of 1 Corinthians that we've been studying, the title of our series is Good News for a Bad Church. Uh, this church had a lot of things wrong in it. And one of those things that was very uh, seriously in error was the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper and their misunderstanding of it. And so Paul, again, in this letter today, is going to be correcting this issue and addressing the chaos that was going on here with communion. And so with that, let's read verses 17 through 34, and then we're going to work verse by verse through this passage. Um, but before we, um, before we read, can we just have a word of prayer? Let's pray. Father, would you help me now as I preach your word? Would you open our eyes to truth? As Hannah just shared by way of testimony, Lord, would we identify the voice of the accuser, the voice of the liar in our head right now? And through the power of our resurrected Lord and Savior, would we rebuke him through the authority that you have given to us through your resurrection and ascension? And so, Father, we pray right now that your spirit would illumine our understanding, that we would understand what this passage is teaching to us 2,000 years later. We know Paul was writing to a specific group of people at a specific time. But Lord, help us to pull forward 2,000 years later the principles and the great truth here in this passage as we behold once again the gospel, the new covenant of grace, and the finished work of Jesus as we see the significance of communion and why it's such a powerful symbol in the local church. Father, again, if there is anyone here today that doesn't know you, even through this message that is primarily geared to Christians, believers, would you take the power of the gospel and impart it to dead hearts and awaken them to the truth of the gospel today? We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's read, shall we? Verse 17 through 34. The Bible says this, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. First of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies or factions among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament, or the New Covenant. It's the same Greek word there for testament and covenant, diatheke. This is the New Testament in my blood. 
This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death or proclaim the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge or examine ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Notice those words and the differences there. I'll come back to that. That verse is important, verse 32. Verse 33, Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Wait for one another. Don't get all selfish and eat all of your food and not share with others. Wait. And, and this is a little, sounds a little odd to us because when we have the Lord's Supper, how, how many of you are like you're reading this? And again, 2,000 years later, it's tough for us to understand what Paul's saying because when we have communion, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we have a little cracker and a little cup of juice. How is it possible to eat too much or drink too much? Well, one of the reasons that we practice that today is directly from, most scholars believe, comes from this passage. So we're going to talk about why is it that we get a little piece of unleavened bread and a little cup of juice today and why that has been the practice now for many, many centuries of church history. But here he says, wait for one another. So why is he saying wait? We'll, we'll, we'll read that and study that here. Verse 34, and if any man hunger, let him eat at home. So he's saying, listen, the Lord's Supper isn't about satisfying your physical hunger. If you're hungry, take care of that at home. But when you come together in these church gatherings, it's for the purpose of remembering the Lord's death, not for you to get your belly full. That you come together not unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. And so today's message title is Communion Chaos. So clearly, um, what was going on here was there was an abuse of the Lord's Supper. Now, as we get into this passage, let me just remind you about a couple of things, keys to understanding this passage. In fact, at this time, you'll want to take out your worship guide. If you like to take notes, there's some uh, notes there to go along with you on the front and back as we go through the study, some blanks for you to fill in. And so here's some reminders. Number one, keep in mind that this letter, this epistle, was a corrective passage. Most of the entire book of 1 Corinthians was corrective. Paul was writing this to correct wrong behaviors that were going on in the church. And the main theme of the entire book is to say this. In order to change behavior, you must change your belief and understanding on what the gospel really is. And that's really the entire theme of this book is that when you understand the gospel and its implications and the application of it, and you begin to live out of that, and from that, you see how it changes every behavior in your life. And so Paul is clearly correcting wrong behavior here, but he's also correcting wrong understanding connected with the behavior, and I think you'll see that today. Number two, this is an occasional document. What does that mean? Again, most of the New Testament epistles were written to certain churches dealing with certain specific issues, and so we have to make sure that as we apply God's Word, for instance, like we can't even understand how people were getting full and drunken on food and, and juice uh, and, and drink. How is that possible? Well, again, the culture of that time period was a little different than the culture today, and they celebrated a big feast connected with the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about that here this morning. And so, and finally, this is the longest passage in the Bible giving instructions on the Lord's Supper. The other three passages in the Bible that deal with the Lord's Supper are really just an account of Jesus actually having the Lord's Supper or instituting it with his disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So this is really the only passage outside of the Gospels where we're given specific instructions on communion. And so that should also inform our understanding and application of Paul's words to the church of Corinth today. 
And so with all that said, here's an outline of the uh, passage that we're studying today. You can go ahead and fill in the blanks if you want. Go ahead and look down, uh, down your notes, flip to the back. You can go ahead and fill those in so you don't have to worry about it later. Um, so first of all, we're going to be looking at the critique. Paul's going to critique their wrong behavior. Then he's going to teach them a very good tradition. And I love this because I'm not a traditionalist, but there's great traditions which reinforce truth. And whenever traditions can be helpful to reinforce truth, I'm all for them. But whenever traditions supersede or confuse truth, I'm against them. Amen. That's exactly right. And so traditions are okay as long as they serve the truth. But the moment they subvert the truth, I'm not a traditionalist. So I think this is a great passage that helps us even with that. So with all that said, let me just give you a little context here to this passage. The wealthy in Corinth in the first century had more food and better food, and the poor had less food and poor quality food. On the big feast days and festivals, this wasn't just true in Christendom, but also in pagan worship. So keep in mind that a lot of the believers in Corinth had come out of pagan practices. Thus, one of the reasons Paul addressed the meat sacrifice to idols issue, among others. And so you had these new believers... And so some of these cultural traditions were that on big days of feasts and festivals, the wealthy of the city would take the entire day off of work, while their servants or the poorer class were still working while, they went to, while the rich went to the temples for the feast. In the Roman Empire, there were no official days off from work within the regular work week. So the poor, the real working class, um, they were paid daily. And if they didn't work daily, they would not eat the next week. So they didn't get any days, days off. And so the poor would come late to these feasts at the end of the day, and the rich were already fat and drunk and stuffed. And a lot of the poor would come into the, these, uh, of course, both in pagan worship and then also in Christendom, they would come in and they would, there would be no food left in these feasts. And the rich would be in one room while the poor got relegated to the little table. How many of you remember Thanksgiving? How many of you were relegated to the little table at Thanksgiving? Yes, we all were. We all had to go through that rite of passage to get into the big table. I remember the first Thanksgiving where that happened. I felt so accomplished. But what was happening here in both pagan practice, but, and this is sad, it was happening in Christian practice, is that the rich were coming to these big feasts and then they would have the Lord's Supper at the end of these big feasts and the poor would come and there would be no food left. They would be relegated to another room or a courtyard. And so you can imagine that there was some class warfare in these, in these practices. And, and of course, you would assume that Christians wouldn't do this, right? I mean, the pagans did that, but the Christian, Christians wouldn't. Wrong. The Christians did the same thing. And that brings us to our passage of study today. This is a corrective passage. And so when we participate in communion at Fairview and pretty much any other church today in modern Christianity, we are given a small piece of unleavened bread and a small cup of juice. But when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was a full meal. So you see, the Lord's Supper was connected to what Jewish feast and how, how did Jesus connect that? He connected it to Passover. In fact, we're going to look at that here in a little bit. I'm getting ahead of my notes just a little bit. And so when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was connected to this Passover feast, to this Passover meal. So why did Jesus and those in the first century observe a full meal, but almost all churches today simply give a little piece of cracker and a small cup of juice? An argument could be made that the reason for that was because of this abuse here in Corinth, and so now, 2,000 years later, we practice this today. And so, um, with all that said, let's look at the passage of Scripture here in verse 17 again. We just read it, and we're going to go verse by verse and mention some of the truths here. Verse 17 and 18. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. I just want to stop and point out the difference between this section of Scripture and verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11. Look back in your Scriptures there at verse 2. He says, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things. So last week we talked about women and head coverings. And Paul actually had a couple of good things to say before he delivered to them this issue of head coverings and the confusion there. But now in this section, he's like, I got nothing good for you. I got nothing good. I have no praise at this point. This is a serious issue. And so he says, I praise you not. He says, 
you come together not for the betterment, but for the worse. Isn't that a sad statement on the gathering of the church? That the gathering of the church would not even be for the worse. And it was because their focus was all wrong here in this observing of the Lord's Supper and the picture that they were painting within the midst of this celebration and the selfishness that was there, the division, the carnality. And so he says, now, this, that, this, now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better but for the worse. Why? For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Now let me just remind you of how this book is laid out. There were two sources of information for Paul when he was writing this letter to the church of Corinth. Some from the household of Chloe came from Corinth to Ephesus and reported to Paul what was going on in the churches of Corinth. That's found in chapter 1, verse 11. And so for the first six chapters of Corinthians, Paul says, I hear these things are occurring and they need to stop. And here's your deficiency in understanding and applying the gospel. And so he addressed those issues. Another source of information came later, evidently, to Paul, where another delegation from Corinth came to see Paul at Ephesus. Over in chapter 16 of this same letter, you find that a delegation came to Paul. And the delegation that came to Paul, kind of a second visit to Paul at Ephesus, um, they, they had a group of questions for Paul and that he was going to be answering those. And so from chapter 7 onward, Paul addresses questions that the church of Corinth had. Questions on marriage that we studied, sexuality, singleness, food offered to idols, spiritual gifting, giving of offerings. But he had heard that there were divisions among the church as well, and so he kind of stops in the midst of the Q&A that he's doing in this second half of the book, and he comes back to a major wrong behavior in the book. He comes to a major wrong behavior here in the book in chapter 11, and he addresses this issue once again of division. He's already tackled the issue of of division in chapter 3, but now he comes back to this issue of division and disunity in the church, and it's seen evident in how the church of Corinth was observing the Lord's Supper. And so uh, that, that gives you a little bit of the context here, because Paul had already kind of reiterated Uh, Back in chapter 10, we looked at this a few weeks ago. He said, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. What's Paul saying there? And and this connects with this passage today, verses 17 through 34 of 1 Corinthians 11. What's he saying? He's saying that the purpose of this observance together is, yes, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus and the great reality of the new covenant, but it's also an expression of our unity as the body of Christ. And so sadly, communion in the churches of Corinth were not a symbol of unity, but they were a symbol of division. And you see, the Lord's Supper is a great practice and expression, I believe, of the church's unity. Or it should be. It should be. And so really one of the key themes that we're going to apply as we study this passage today is this theme of unity. Because if there is one observance within the local church that should magnify and enhance and show forth the unity of the church, it's this observance of the Lord's Supper. Now, with that in mind, before we go on in this passage, because I want you to see here the connection of this. So, so Paul's saying, listen, there's divisions among you. Look, look back at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 11. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. Paul's like, you're observing the Lord's Supper and there should be unity, but there's disunity. So let me just stop for a moment and mention what disunity is not and then what disunity is. I think that's important that we keep in mind. What is disunity not? Disunity is not disagreements. Hey, have you ever had a disagreement with your family? You ever had a disagreement with your brothers and sisters, with your mom and dad? Yeah, of course you have, but you're still part of their family. And you know what? In a church, I hate to break the news to you, but there's no perfect church. There's no church that always gets along and agrees on everything. Amen. And you know what? There's going to be disagreements in a church. And what we all need to keep in mind is disunity is not the fact that we disagree sometimes. It's not that we disagree on certain issues. Now, is there a point when disagreement creates division? Sure. If we disagree on key essential doctrines of the Word of God, sure. I mean, that's going to become an issue of division. 
But we're talking about disagreements on secondary, tertiary stuff. And we could all point to examples of that. So disunity is not disagreements. Number two, disunity is not expressing concerns. I think sometimes uh, pastors are bad about this. It's like if any member of the church expresses a concern, he lobs to them this accusation of you're causing disunity in the church, and that's not the case. Expressing healthy concern is not disunity. And I think that needs to be said because I think that sometimes uh, brothers and sisters are afraid to express concern because they feel like, because they feel like that would be disunifying. And so disunity is not disagreement. It's not expressing concerns. Number three, it's not viewing something differently. It's not viewing something differently. We're going to have different viewpoints on different issues, both in our culture today and also in Christendom and how we apply different principles of God's Word. Some have a more, you know, a more, a more uh, a strict approach to maybe a principle of God's Word than others. And so, again, that's not disunity. We're going to have disagreements and some, some different views there. And then finally, disunity is not confronting sin. You know what? There's, a, there's this thought out there today that if you're loving towards someone, you won't confront anything wrong going on in their life. Can I tell you that is a lie from the enemy? If I see my son running headlong into the interstate to play in traffic, and I say, Stop! He might interpret in that moment that I'm angry, but I'm really fighting for his survival. And you know what? Man, God really has been working on my heart in this. If I love you, I'm going to confront you lovingly, lovingly, but I'm going to confront sin. I'm going to confront sin in my own life. I'm going to confront, we're going to confront sin together as a church. And so, boy, that's not easy. It's hard, but that's not disunity. Confronting sin, God calls us to do that. And you know what? I'm thankful for a gospel. <laughs> this is great. I'm thankful for a gospel that's powerful enough to deal with it. Amen. I am thankful for the gospel that transforms, that gives to me the good news that I don't have to go back to that garbage anymore. I can cling to Christ. He's in me. He's transformed me. I'm a new creature. There's a part of me that doesn't want sin any longer. And so disunity is not disagreements. It's not expressing concern. It's not viewing something differently, and it's not confronting sin. But here's what is disunity. Are you ready? Airing grievances in an inappropriate way. For instance, if you've got an issue with someone in your church, you go to that person, not to two or three other brothers and sisters in Christ and air your grievances to them. What kind of courage is that? What kind of love is that for your brother or sister in Christ when you've got a grievance with someone else and you go and you air that grievance in an inappropriate way? That's disunity. Amen, preacher. That's disunity. Number two, leaders lording their authority over the church. Man, have we seen this one in, in, in decades, you know, grow up in this. And again, it kind of connects back earlier. I think leaders sometimes like, oh, if you disagree with me in anything, you know, you're causing division. And so leaders like to lord their authority over the church. That's disunity. Man, leaders have a huge responsibility in this to, in, to encourage that, that atmosphere and that environment. Disunity is, is recruiting people to your side. So kind of connected to the first one, this is recruiting people to your side. That's what Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, there's factions here, there's divisions. Some of you are trying to recruit people to Paul and the followings of Paul. Some of you are trying to say, well, well I like Apollos, he's better. You know, preacher, hero worship. Or I'm, I'm a Peter, you know. And so there was these, you know, people trying to recruit to people's side. And, and this is where people, and this is where worldly, uh, people who aren't saved see the politics in the church. And they're like, I don't want anything to do with that. Recruiting people to your side. Getting on the phone or getting on a, a text message later and, oh, can you believe what he said? Well, how do you know what he or she said? Why don't you go ask them before recruiting people to your side? You see, you see, see how this is disunity? You see the difference? It's okay to have a disagreement. But when you start recruiting people to your side, that clearly is not unity. And then finally, disagreements with mistreatment. Assuming the worst about someone in the midst of your disagreement and assigning motives that aren't even necessarily there. And so let me just keep, 
let me just remind you that unity is not uniformity, but rather it's harmony in the midst of our diversity, and it's handling our differences biblically in a Christ-like way led of the Spirit. So unity is ultimately found in how we treat each other, not in that we completely agree with each other. I'll say that again. Unity is found in how we treat each other, not in that we completely agree with each other. We live in a culture and a society where if you're not for somebody 100%, you're their enemy. That is a very isolating way to live because you know what? I don't agree with my wife 100%. Ain't that right, honey? Yeah. I mean... Somebody who thinks that you've got to agree with them 100% on everything, that is a very difficult person to live with. And so unity is found in how we treat each other. Question, as we study this passage, how is the church of Corinth treating one another? Selfishly, carnally. They were thinking about themselves and their appetites. They were forgetting the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper. And so their disunity was seen in how they were observing this meal and how they were treating one another, specifically how the rich were treating the poor. And so if we keep reading, verse 19, For there must also be divisions among you, that they which are approved may be manifest among you. So this is interesting. Paul says there are divisions among you, and I believe it, but then he says there is a natural set of divisions in the midst of what he's saying here is he's saying that you can know who's pleasing God by how they treat the ones with whom they disagree. He says here, um, For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So Paul's saying, listen, uh, there are natural divisions and we see these and we know those who have received the approval of God through his grace because we see that they're able to treat one another graciously and they're able to have unity in the midst of their disagreements. Interesting verse. But as you look at the outline here, you see that Paul is critiquing, he's addressing this behavior. Verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before, before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. Now, as I mentioned to you, when we have communion, we pass down a small cracker and a small cup of juice. It's not possible to eat too much on a small little piece of unleavened bread, and it's not possible to drink too much on a little thimbleful of juice. But in this time, they had large pieces of bread. They had a large cup. In fact, up until the late 1800s, everybody drank from the same cup. It wasn't until the late 1800s that a journal of medicine talked about the dangers of that and germs going around, and that's when the individual cups were instituted in the late 18, 1896, I believe, I saw in a medical journal. So you can, you can uh, thank the 1800s and the medical uh, field for going to individual cups. But as I remind you, this feast during this time was larger because it was connected to the old Jewish feast of the Passover. So Jesus in Luke 22, verse 15 and he said unto them, With desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Christ was going to eat this Passover meal, so there was a lot more food present there. And so it says that, 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 he, would, that he would observe the Passover. But then here's what Jesus did. Look at verses 19 and 20 of Luke 22. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it, and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after the supper saying, This cup is the new covenant, the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, we read that and we're like, oh yeah, this is the Lord's Supper. This is Jesus instituting. But for a Jew, for the disciples who are sitting in that room hearing this, when he all of a sudden said, This is my body which is given for you, and this cup represents the blood of my new covenant, that shocked them because they were observing a Jewish meal up until that time. But Jesus took the Jewish Passover here and he totally redefined it, totally refocused it. He said, now 
This meal is about me. In fact, the Jewish feast of the Passover all along was pointing to me. Jesus took the most important meal of the Jewish religious calendar and he redefined it and said that this meal has always been about pointing to him, the ultimate lamb that would be sacrificed, not for the coverings of the sins of the people, but for the removing of the sins of the people. And you know what? This is still offensive to the Jewish people today, that Jesus took their Passover and refocused it to himself. In the Roman world, as I mentioned to you, there were no days off. You worked every day. Only if you were wealthy could you take a day off. Poor people had to come later in the day. And so because of that and because that this meal was a bigger meal, there was just a lot of confusion around what the Corinthians were doing. And so Jesus takes this meal and he focuses it on himself. And he says that this meal is now about me. So as the Corinthians were eating this meal, they were focused on the food rather than focused on the meaning behind the food and ultimately Christ. Look at verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 11. What? Uh, again, it's, it's hard to read tone with Paul, but I'm just going to guess that he was like, you know, hello, what? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? He's like, listen, your home is for you to get satisfied physically and to quench your thirst. But when you come together for this meal, that's not the primary purpose. And so you're missing it here, church. And so he says, or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not. So what was happening is these rich people would be there and they would have been eating all day because they had the day off. They had been feasting. And then the poor people would get there and they had nothing and they felt ashamed. I'm poor. I'm penalized. You know, this was somewhat of like a potluck. It would be like you bringing your potluck meal and then you holding it and saying, mine. And you're eating all of your, you know, tater tot casserole. Somebody's alarm's going off. So yeah, we'll take care of that. Yeah, like, and so you're like, mine. This is my tater tot casserole. And so Paul just addresses this here and he says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Again, he's clear. I praise you not. So Paul is giving a stern warning here. Paul, the apostle of the, of, of the gospel, is challenging and, and confronting and critiquing their wrong behavior. And with that, now he goes into teaching the tradition and teaching the reality of this practice and why they should practice it in this manner. So look at verse 23. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so Paul here again affirms that Jesus took this feast day, this Passover meal, and he redefined it. He refocused it on, we're now eating the bread, not to signify the deliverance from Egypt. And, and what was the purpose of, of unleavened bread in the Jewish Passover? The purpose of the bread there was to speak about the speed in which the Jewish people were delivered. Because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They made unleavened bread that night when the death angel passed over. That's where we get the word Passover. The death angel passed over. And so the Jewish people didn't have time to have leaven in the bread. Little did they know that that unleavened bread would be a perfect picture of the sinless body of Jesus later on, 1,400 years later. And so again, keep in your mind that for the Jews, for 1,400 years, they had celebrated this Passover where this unleavened bread represented their deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. And now this bread was going to signify their deliverance from the bondage of sin forever. Praise God. And the blood was, was not a picture of a, of, of a cup of deliverance from Egypt, but now it was a picture of a cup of deliverance for humanity from the bondage of sin. What grace. What truth. What glorious truth in the new covenant of the finished work of Jesus. And if you want to write a passage of scripture here to compare and contrast and read and enhance your study and understanding of God's word, write 2 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 18. What a powerful truth. And so Jesus takes this meal and he says, this is about remembering what I'm about to do, disciples, what I'm about to do, church. And so do you see what Paul's saying? What Paul is saying is, this isn't just another feast. 
And he was even confronting the Jews who perhaps saw it still in the old context. Do you see that? There was a lot of things that were intersecting in Corinth. It wasn't just Jews who had been saved, but Gentiles and their pagan practices. And all of them, because of the first century, had this class um, uh, uh, bias and this class warfare. (laughs) 2,000 years later, that's still going on. And you see all that going on, and Paul's confronting all that, and he's saying, listen, listen, listen. The purpose of this meal is twofold. Number one, it's about remembering and recognizing what Jesus did. And number two, it's a sign of your unity as the body of Christ. All right? But once you look at this, he, and this is something I just want to touch upon briefly. He says that this bread is his body. Look at verse 24. This bread is my body. Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then he says in verse 25, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Um, Just want to point out here quickly, there's various views on what Jesus means when he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Uh, Some very interesting views. Many of you have probably grown up hearing some of these things. Uh, Number one, uh, some people say that this is literally the body and blood of Jesus. And so they say that this bread and this juice literally becomes the body and blood of Jesus. That's a Weird view, it's called transubstantiation. In fact, in those religious uh, observances, uh, the reason why they put the bread on, in your mouth is because they don't want you to drop Jesus. They don't, I mean, that's what they believe. They believe that this bread literally becomes that. And so that would be a wrong view. That's not what Jesus was meaning here. Then there's kind of a, an, another view that's still skewed. It's called consubstantiation, where it says Jesus is present in, with, and under the bread and juice. So they're saying it's not exactly his body and blood, but he's like in those elements. And so again, it's, it's kind of a mix between transubstantiation and then this one, which is where we hold representation. This, 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 this bread and this juice is merely a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus. And I think that's pretty clear as you study Scripture, that this is what Jesus was pointing to, that these things were symbols. They were pointing to what he would do. So just wanted to throw that out there. That's a little uh, Bible college stuff for you, all right? Transubstantiation, consubstantiation, and representation. And so you see what Paul's doing here. He's working through this passage. He's critiquing their behavior. He's now teaching to them the proper practice of the tradition, which reinforces the great truth of the supreme sacrifice of Jesus. And now he gets to application here in verses uh, 26 through 27. But before I get, go there, let me just mention this. Is, he says here, For as oft as ye drink this cup, this do in remembrance of me. As often as you do it. Uh, there has been also some confusion behind this passage where people, some, some people read this and say, Oh, Jesus means for us to do this often, like every single time we're together. And so some churches choose to do this every single week. However, however, there's other churches that just choose to do it once a year in connection with the idea that it was at the Passover. And so they do it around the uh, Easter week and they observe it then. Other churches observe it, you know, more, more regularly. We here at Fairview observe it probably seven to eight times a year. Uh, we do it about once every six to seven weeks. So we'll be observing the Lord's Supper again on November the 18th. We're already planning and preparing for that wonderful celebration as we come to uh, celebrate the finished work of Jesus. And so I hope you'll join us uh, for that day. But I think what Paul's saying here and what the Lord was also saying is, listen, as often as you do it, the focus is to be upon Christ and what he's done. So however often you observe it, and churches differ on how many times they do it a year, the point is, It's for the purpose of remembering the Lord's death and proclaiming the gospel. Look at verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. What God is saying here in this Lord's Supper that we observe is that this is a rehearsal of the reality of the gospel. It's a remembrance of what the gospel is. What is the gospel? Well, Jesus died. Jesus died. That's what he says that this meal is signifying. When we take that bread and when we drink that juice, we are remembering the great sacrifice, the death of Jesus in our place. So what is the gospel? It's that Jesus died in my place for my sins. So he died in my place for my sins. Of course, he was buried and he rose again the third day 
this all encompasses the reality of the gospel, and my response is to repent and believe that. To believe it. To change my mind. That's what the word repent means. To change my mind about who saves, what saves, how you're saved. And to place my faith in the finished work of Jesus. He is the Sabbath. He is the one that we enter into for actual rest, actual peace, actual joy. And so my response is to repent and believe this, to receive this for me as my only hope of salvation. Acts 20, 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith. Repent and believe, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. Pretty simple. The law of Moses and keeping the law could never justify you. It was only through what Jesus did for you on the cross that you could be justified. This is the gospel. This is what we rehearse. This is what we remember when we take that bread and drink that cup. And now Paul gets to this application. Verses 27 through 31, he says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So Paul here says this issue is serious. This is a serious observance. Now, let me just mention here, this word unworthily, because there's been a lot of confusion and a lot of misunderstanding as to what this word unworthily means. Um, Maybe you grew up in a church where the Lord's Supper was not a time of celebration for you. It was a time of great fear and trembling. Now, I think that both extremes can be wrong. And so let me just be clear on that. I think that certainly when we get together for the Lord's Supper, I don't think you can read this passage and not come away with a sense of solemnness to what we're doing. But I think that sometimes we took this passage and we went, because this is human nature, we we like to go to extremes. We don't like to deal with tension. We don't like to deal with the mystery. We want to try to figure it all out and say, oh, well, this is this and this. But, But I think here you have to see that this has been misapplied. And what I mean by that, when I would go to church as a kid, I was scared to death. Because I was thinking through, okay, I hit my sister this week, and I'm not sure if I confessed that yet. Um, you know, have I confessed every single sin? And of course, that gets into a whole different sermon on, do we really even understand what the blood of Jesus accomplished for us in the cross? When we keep on thinking that it's the quality of our confession rather than the quality of his sacrifice, which gave to us deliverance. But anyway, that's a different sermon. I think many of you have heard me preach on this before from Hebrews 9 and 10. That's where I base that theology on. I would invite you to study it. It's great truth, and it sets free. And so I think that the focus sometimes is, okay, all right, all right, I'm not sure if I've confessed everything. I'm not sure. And so, you know, I'm not going to take this because I don't want God to strike me down dead. Now, again, in this passage, nowhere does it say that the Lord sends a lightning bolt and strikes people down dead. I think that the, just the sheer consequences, I mean, do you think that if people are getting drunk, look back at verse 21, for another is hungry and another is drunken. Do you think that drunkenness will lead to an untimely death? Certainly it can. And so I think that part of this is just the natural consequences of sin, but I also would say that God is chastising believers here as a loving father would. As a loving father who would see his church not understanding the Lord's Supper and lovingly trying to show them both through Paul's warning and also through the consequences of sin that if you do this, it's going to lead to... To, and of course, what does the word sleep mean? Well, most of the times in the Bible when the word sleep is there, it's talking about death. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. 
For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are, not, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Verses 30 and 31, 32 or 31 and 32 are juicy. Because if you study and you look up the words judged and the word condemned there, they're different Greek words. And so in the first half of that passage, Paul's saying, look, examine yourself. Look to yourself. Judge whether you are, are seeing this rightly. Because if not, God is going to chastise. And he does that so you're not big J judged, condemned with the world. Why? Because Paul knows that for them who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. Amen. That's the truth. And so what does unworthy mean here? What is he saying by taking unworthy? Does he mean that it's about your righteous record? All right, so between the last time we observed it and when we observed it on November 18th, you tally up your list. Okay, I, I, I did this, I did that. Is it about that? Is it about whether you've, whether you've committed any sin or not? Hello, all of us this last week have committed some sin, whether it was a sin of commission or omission. And here's what I want you to study, okay? Study the Old Testament sacrifices, and study specifically when the people would bring their sacrifice to the temple in the Old Testament system, and the priest would inspect who? Was the focus ever on the person and inspecting the person who brought the sacrifice, or was the inspection on what? Is the inspection was on the sacrifice. And so do you know where ultimately our focus should be in the Lord's Supper? Not on, as one theologian put it, not on spiritual navel-gazing. Sure, should there be this, this, and what I mean by spirit, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Oh, I haven't done this. We don't understand at that point then, in that extreme, the supreme sacrifice of Jesus. However, we also don't go into the Lord's Supper and say, oh, sin's no big deal. I can just keep on doing what what I want. After all, I'm under, no, that's not it either. So what does unworthy mean? It's not about your righteous behavior and absence of sin. Number two, it means not doing it on purpose. That was, that's what Paul is addressing here. He's addressing the manner. He's saying, don't treat this Lord's Supper as just another meal where you satisfy your physical hunger and quench your physical thirst. It's not about that. And so you're not doing this on purpose for the right reason. You're not doing it in remembrance of the supreme sacrifice of Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And so it means not doing it intentionally while remembering the death of Jesus. Hey, question. Can you go home today and get a little piece of unleavened bread and a little cup of juice and drink it? Yes, there's nothing special about that outside of this assembly or the assembly of a body of believers doing it for the purpose of worship and remembrance. And so that's the idea here, that these elements take on a beautiful significance and symbolism and meaning in this mystery of the union of the body of Christ. Look back at 1 Corinthians 10. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So Paul gives an application and a warning here. He says, examine yourself. Why? Because there's consequences for you not seeing this as beautiful and as serious and as solemn as it truly is. And so the Lord chastises. Turn with me quickly to Hebrews 12. This is another passage that sometimes we look at and we're like, oh, that's, that's scary. Well, not if you know the love of the Father. I mean, my kids know that from time to time, I offer them correction. I offer them both verbal warnings and physical warnings and admonitions and corrections. Why? Because I love them. You know what? Ever since seeing the gospel and and seeing the truth of just what God lays out here, I trust the heart of my Father. It says in verse 6 of Hebrews 12, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And corrects or, 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 or inquires deeply, scourges every son whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? So isn't this interesting? Paul over in 1 Corinthians, I mean, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> Based on their behavior, Paul had to even scratch his head sometimes and say, Are you even saved? 
I mean, you're having a relationship with, I mean, this guy in 1 Corinthians 5 is having this relationship. But notice that Paul knows that they're children of God. Why? Because he sees the chastening hand of his loving father upon them. And he sees that he is going to correct them. He calls them saints in chapter 1. I mean, I mean, Paul is convinced that these people are new in Christ, but they're not living like it. So what's the answer? What is your only hope for actually living like you're born again? Seeing what Jesus really did for you. Coming back to that point and saying, okay, this is who I am now in Christ. Christ is enough. My Father loves me. He's going to lovingly warn me, correct me. So he says here in Hebrews 12, he says, Furthermore, we had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. Listen, your, your human fathers knew how to correct you, and they did it. Why? I mean, the writer of Hebrews says, and, and sometimes they didn't even correct you for the right reasons. They just did it, you know, because, because they wanted to, you know, out of their flesh. And we gave them reverence and respect. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. <laughs> I don't think my kids have ever said, oh, yay, my daddy's going to correct me. It's not the case. And it's certainly not the case within our, our Christian walk. When we are bent on our own destruction, God in his love corrects and chastens. When God sees us about to run out into the interstate, spiritually speaking, and ruin and wreck our lives, you better believe he's going to take the keys from you so you don't do that. He's going to, listen, there have been times in my life where I can't explain it any other way than to say that was the chasing hand of God that kept me from making that foolish decision. Now, God gives to us something called a free will. You can resist that. And like in human correction, you can resist that. And it's so much worse, and there's so many more scars and consequences later. Sin is never a good idea. But do not confuse the consequences and chastening for our sinful behaviors with the reality that the supreme sacrifice of Jesus has dealt with the ultimate judgment once for all. And you see that here in the Lord's Supper. Paul is saying this is a serious picture of what Christ accomplished for us, and you are missing it. You are missing it. And so as we finish up this passage, look at verses 33 and 34. He says, wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, this isn't brilliant stuff. It's not like Paul's going to lay out some theology. He just says, when you come together to eat, wait. Again, doesn't that sound like a loving father? Hey, wait. Don't get selfish. Wait for your other brothers and sisters in Christ. Wait that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. There were other issues that Paul evidently was going to address later when he came back to Corinth. And so, one of the reasons that we take a small piece of bread and a small cup of juice today is so that we won't be guilty of focusing on the food rather than focusing on the meaning behind the food. And so we take a small piece of unleavened bread and a small cup of juice because our purpose in observing that when we're here is not to fill our belly or to quench our physical thirst. It's to point us to the reality that Jesus has quenched or Jesus has satisfied our spiritual hunger and he has quenched our spiritual thirst. Communion is a symbol of our Savior's supreme sacrifice and is also a reflection of our unity as the body of Christ. That's the reality here this morning. This bread is not to satisfy our physical hunger. This juice is not meant to quench our physical thirst. It is meant to point to the fact that Jesus has satisfied our spiritual hunger and quenched our spiritual thirst. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. And in him, we find that he is enough. And so this observance, when we do it again in a few weeks on November the 18th, it will be a wonderful reflection on the supreme and final sacrifice of Jesus, a sacrifice which was sufficient, which dealt with the sin issue once and for all, past, present, and future. When Jesus died and shed his blood, he shed it once, the writer of Hebrews says. And so that is a great picture of what he did. And then also it's a beautiful picture of our union in Christ.